This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R102.7 FM. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Greening the Apocalypse, Triple R's dose of global problems and local solutions where each week we shine a light into the environmental heart of darkness and see if there's any reconstructive surgery we can do in there with our second-hand gardening tools. Last week our guest was Shona Candy and she pondered if local farms can continue to feed this growing city with its rising population and urban sprawl and tonight we will be zooming into the backyard and talking with activist scholar of urban food production Zainal Zainuddin, about just how much we can grow at home. Our regular conspirator Bushy is still away uh, for one more week. Missing him? Yes. I, I am. Uh, but back <laughs> after dancing with bears in Hokkaido with a mind for food politics like a Japanese folded steel secateurs, <laughs> Sarah Coles. Hello. Welcome back. We could do this. That is, you have to wear it when you're in the mountains in Hokkaido so that you don't get eaten by a bear. Get out. You have to wear a bear bell, yeah. carry spray, and clap a lot, Did and talk on f- the trail. Firstly, a bear scared by bells seems unlikely. <laughs> no, I think it's just then they know that you're human and you probably don't taste as good as maybe a Secondly, deer or something. Yeah. I'm not I, sure. I, I, don't, I, I don't know. I reckon humans would be just as tasty i mean think of the variety of diet we have we're basically in you know internally marinated it probably just tastes like with, a mint slice with all that udon noodle you're eating but but secondly like what like i can't figure that japanese have killer animals i just imagine if well, you see wild animals they're like have enormous manga eyes and stumpy uh, limbs there was, <laughs> it was quite we were in some fairly remote country yeah. in the very middle of the North Island mm. in the mountains. And um, I think maybe six people have been eaten by bears this far, so far this year this in year? Japan. And most of them were doing things that we were doing, like foraging wow. for wild greens and oh. fungi. I'm very glad you made it back. Thanks. Yeah. Wait, when back. did you, how did you decide to clap? How and when? Um... It was my mostly my partner would do the clapping, because um, he's got a degree in music. So <laughs> <laughs> they, more they really don't like seven eight beats. Yeah, the, and I, yeah, I was trying to just do you know like an Algerian kind of war cry, like la, 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 la. I was just that might have attracted them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, continuing our introductions. Yes. Mate, yeah, uh, this one, uh, Kate Dundas, who. Destroyer of all urban planning super villains. That was my intro. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> That's a great intro, Adam. I'm good. Yeah. I am fine. Just, you know, destroying the super villains. 
<laughs> getting into trouble for trying to destroy them a little bit too enthusiastically. <laughs> I have to curb the enthusiasm. <laughs> Jed McCartney, how are you? I'm well, thanks, Adam. Yeah. Welcome back to the uh, co-conspirators together. Yeah, no. nice, I think it's a bit dangerous, like don't you? Dark crystal. We start every episode of Green in the Apocalypse with a segment we called What Caught My Eye. Anybody want to jump in? I can start yeah. with potentially quite a long one. Um, I will try and wrap it up fairly swiftly. But it's an article from the conversation called Are Internet Populists Ruining Democracy for the Rest of Us? And this was written by Vyacheslav Polonsky from the University of Oxford. Um, thank you, Shona Candy, for posting this on your Facebook feed. Fairly relevant to this article. So, uh, how I get my news? <laughs> <laughs> By other people posting things on Facebook. Um, so this article is saying that the internet has rewired civil society, propelling collective action into a radically new dimension. Democracy is now not only exercised at the ballot box, but lived and experienced online in a day-to-day basis. And while this has many positive implications for political participation, it's also causing problems for leaders. And we've definitely seen this in Australia. So they've been elected through time-honoured democratic systems, but now find themselves vulnerable to the win of the being internet mob. So when they say democracy, mm. they just mean like we're discussing things. Yeah, discussing yeah. things and reacting yeah. to things very yep. quickly and very loudly. Yep. So then those in power feel like they have to then react back to probably a, a loud minority. Mm. Um, so people are encouraged to speak up online about matters they deem to be of public concern. So the internet shows how diverse public opinion can be. And it's particularly visible at times of controversy when a motivated group of users can be relied Uh, upon to speak out and I see this all the time in my work you know if we're proposing something like a path through a park you know something highly controversial that some members of the community don't want they go crazy really really extremely loud and often it's only four or five people whereas the general population aren't really that bothered but they don't speak up so it's the loud minority who tend to get what they want. So all over the world, these views are expressed online and they can actually impede on the smooth governance of a country. Um, And we're heading into uncharted territory. And I think Brexit might have actually been a a direct consequence of fairly um, reactive... Uh, internet memes and so forth. So the Brexit meme spread faster than the Remain statistics and the Leave campaign, as we know, triumphed. So you can't actually ignore the fairly dramatic consequences of um, potentially fairly reactionary internet voices. Mm. Um, So that the Brexit referendum or the EU referendum was a vivid example of what happens when you combine the power of the internet with that lingering feeling that ordinary people have lost control of the politics that shape their lives. So when people feel like their democratic representatives don't serve them anymore, they look for other people that they know that feel the same, and the internet makes it much easier for them to connect to each other. And the article says their moans turn into movements or turns into flipping Britain leaving the EU. Like major, major repercussions. Mm. So diverse opinions, and I've talked about this before, about how I really feel like I only get a very filtered view of news. Um, Diverse opinions are available on social media, but it doesn't mean we're seeing them. Platforms like Facebook and Twitter allow us to surround ourselves with social feeds that only show us things we like. We choose who to follow, who to friend, and then the magical filter 
that magician, remember we spoke about that Google magician guy, that filter bubbles we create are exacerbated by those personalised algorithms that tells us what we think we're going to like, so it perpetuates itself around in a big circle. We only see the things that we agree with. I so, think I'm going to follow all the One Nation senators. Yeah, do it, do it. Because I don't get exposed to the Galileo movement enough. Quite, yeah. <laughs> quite. But there, this article is stating how people like Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, who have got these very um, polarised political views, are at the forefront of the US election mm. as a reaction to social media, perhaps. So it's uh, a bold experiment. Yeah. Whereas yeah. Other so they're, talk, they're saying it is, it is the process of democracy, yeah. but, um, in, but... In the age of the internet, the it's the very, internet, very it's different. And yeah. we're, and we're pr- potentially only now seeing the consequences of it uh, in major political situations like mm. the uh, EU referendum and the current American elections. Yeah. So, yeah... Our current political institutions are potentially incapable of handling that dynamism and uh, diversity of citizen opinions that are so readily available online. So mm. how's it all going to pan out? You can't be moderate anymore. You've got to be bunkers. Mm. Maybe. Yeah, it's a long way from, like, you know, uh, I, so- I sometimes idealise, like, Jeff, the Jeffersonian ideal of the citizen farmer who gets a lot of time to read books and stands up at uh, political rallies and can speak for, you know, half an hour off the cuff about complex philosophical issues. Uh, and I think those days have gone. Those now. days are long gone. Well, yeah, but maybe <laughs> we'll talk about stuff tonight. You spend more time in the garden, less time on the internet, and you read books and think about things a bit more deeply. Hopefully, that, yes, I'm, I'm twisting this around to gardening again, but it could be the way forward. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we, uh, shall I go next? Thank you for that. I was reading one called <laughs> Life Hacks of the Poor and Aimless. Great article. It's by Laurie Penny in, um, what is it, The Babbler, I think. And she, it starts off, late capitalism is like your love life. It looks a lot less bleak through an Instagram filter. The slow collapse of the social contract is the backdrop for a modern mania for clean eating, healthy living, personal productivity, and radical self-love. The insistence that in spite of all evidence to the contrary, <laughs> we can achieve meaningful existence by maintaining pos- a positive outlook, following our bliss, and doing a few hamstring stretches as the planet burns. It's a bit of a critique of the wellness industry. Oh, yeah. I read something, a similar article to that recently. Like, why are people so obsessed by doing yoga poses on the beach and having a nice filter? That's the one. When uh, the world is burning. And And why are we so obsessed by ourselves? Like, just (coughs) constant self-betterment. Like, what about community and society? We're not that important as individuals. Right, right. Well, she, she goes so far as to say that um, the wellness industry is being co-opted a fair bit by, for instance, David Cameron. And in the UK, people that were unemployed were getting encouraged to, to treat their psychological resistance to work by way of <laughs> obligatory courses that, are, that encourage them to adopt a jollier attitude. They were harangued with motivational text messages telling them oh. to smile at life. And success is the only option. Horrific. Austerity, David Cameron's reaction to austerity was let's text people happy messages while we cut all of their welfare and there's no jobs. So, but just smile, you know, do a little bit of meditation, you'll be fine. Yes. Um, (laughs) The the flip side, she says, though, is that while 
She says, you know, Instagram happiness gurus want to make her uh, drown in her kale smoothie. On the other hand, she noticed that a lot of the most brilliant people she knows, the fighters, the artists, the mad radical thinkers, actually treat each other in, and themselves in ludicru- ludicrously awful ways, almost in reaction to that. You know, <laughs> And so she's just actually trying to find a middle ground here that you do have to take care of yourself as uh, first so you can take care of others and, and the yeah, planet by extension. Of- but it has to be as the foundation of that pyramid, wouldn't you say? Y- yeah. yeah. And you don't need to tell everybody about it on Instagram. No. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we're doing the social commentary tonight. What do you got for us, Sarah? Um, well, I discovered from Hokkaido and mm. guess how much rock melons cost there. Well, looking at notes, $25. <laughs> yeah, that's $25 in What's the in supermarket. Yen, in, in yen. So that's a cheap... Good Lord. A cheap rock melon yeah. cost $25. And to pans nuts about rock melons, in 2008, two rock melons sold at an auction for $23,500. <laughs> Can I tell you how much I hate rock melon? I don't even like, like it. Those I like fruit it salads has... where they scoop it out oh, in yeah. spheres, that is awful. That yeah. destroys this fruit Old salad. Old apple, rock melon, sphere. What's wrong with rock melon? It's not. It's okay if it's got prosciutto wrapped around it. It's just an <laughs> average fruit compared to other ones that are available. I like it. Anyway, moving mm. along. Yes. So I was annoyed when I was in Hokkaido. I loved it there, but I also got quite bad constipation because we couldn't afford <laughs> Too much fruit. Information. An apple is about $4.50. Yeah. One apple. Mm. And we couldn't see any fruit anywhere that wasn't completely perfect. Yeah. So it made me think, oh, no, there's got to be some crazy food waste happening in this country. You can't even see an average apple anywhere. Mm-hmm. And so I started looking into how they grow rock melons, why are they so expensive? And it's because it's so labour-intensive. They're hand-pollinated in greenhouses. Uh, there's a type of melon growing called the Shizuoka method where they only have one melon per vine, so it gets all the flavour. Mm. And then the pruning's precise, and then they make little hats for each rock melon when, the sun, like when it's too sunny. Oh. They have a little hat. There's all this stuff, and it just yeah. drove me crazy in the end. Because yeah. I was thinking, okay, well, ugh, there's so much water grows, goes into producing fruit, so where is all the ugly fruit in this country? What's happening to it? It made me very grateful when I got back here. To see some ugly fruit. Yeah, just to eat an average apple, you know, <laughs> buy a bag of oranges, yeah. steal some lemons from and an alleyway. you regular again? Yeah, I'm good that. now. <laughs> it's very serious, Adam. Yeah. It can ruin a holiday. Well, I'm sorry to hear that, that your holiday went south on account <laughs> of the um, $25 rock melons. Oh, so what caught my eye was an article about that oh. from SBS. Okay. It's just called Melons Are Rich Pickings in Japan. Mm, it's worth looking at just to read about the. It's just crazy how expensive everything is. And there's one type of melon called a musk melon that they sell at specialist fruit gift shops. And those go for $198. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. You're on Greening the Apocalypse on 3RRR. And tonight we're very happy to be joined by Zainal Zainuddin, who is a researcher and scholar in local food and urban agriculture. She's currently doing her PhD at RMIT in Sustainable and Ethical Food Production and Farming Practices throughout Victoria. 
And some of her studies so far have involved working with home gardeners in Melbourne to figure out exactly how much food they grow. So getting to measure stuff, which uh, surprisingly there's been a dearth of data along those lines to date. So welcome. We're very happy to talk these issues with you, Zainal. Thanks well, for coming in. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Awesome. So how did, how did you get uh, interested in this broader topic of food, food security and food sustainability? Well, we have to go back right to the very beginning. I was brought up on a farm. I'm a farm girl at heart. I yep. think I got farming in my blood. And um, I was brought up by my grandparents in North Malaysia. And they had coconut at the back of the house and rice paddy fields in front of the house. So basically, when you talk about self-sufficiency, they were living it way back then. Mm -hmm. They were collecting rainwater, composting toilets. So this is, now it's all a buzzword, but for them it was a way of life. And once you were brought up and exposed to that, you kind of carry that wherever you go. Like I, I live all over the world. I live in France, I live in Hong Kong, I live in China. But that never left me. That mm. has always been, I think you embody the, the, those experiences and those knowledge and it, it never leaves you. So, but when I came here, the way we eat is so different. It's so alien to the way I ate when I was growing up. So that really got me interested in. And also growing up with my grandparents, they grew a lot of the food themselves. Mm. Do you, do you feel more secure with the food right outside the back door? Do, you know, if you're in a place like Hong Kong or even Melbourne where everything is packaged and comes from a fair way away, do, do, you, do you make you nervous? I don't think of think of it that way. Oh, good. <laughs> just me then. Adam likes a bit of the fear, doesn't he? It's like, are you scared? <laughs> but, but he has every right to be scared because research has been done that we only have about three days worth of food mm. on our supermarket shelves. So that is a real concern for everybody. Well, let's, let's talk about your research then. So you have uh, been looking at home gardening in Melbourne and you got a number of people, I understand, to weigh and measure everything they were growing. Yes, um, it ran for about one year. Everyone who harvested anything from the backyard, they weighed and put it in an Excel spreadsheet, and which then at the end of the year, at the end of the collection period, I analyzed it and tabulated it and try and make sense of it. And it's really, really fascinating, simply because the amount of food that is being produced is just phenomenal. And the variety is even more interesting because you have people doing all sorts of things. You said um, someone was growing bugs that they ate. Yes, and you know what? He's actually an IT specialist. It's not that he's some poor person who can't afford to feed his family. Yeah. yeah. He just developed a taste for bugs <laughs> while he's late, uh, coding late at night. No, I, I think he's very aware of where the, how broken the food system is, and he's just looking at because he also has quail in his backyard. Oh, yeah. yep. So he supplements the protein with... Um, mealworms and quail and quail eggs wow. so it is it's really fascinating you, yeah. you these are the things that i didn't expect to find when i was carrying out my research so the people who were growing the food were they living in all different types of settings so did you have somebody with a quarter acre, acre block and someone in an apartment and do you know what their gardens were like the plot varies from like a really huge quarter acre and to your average suburbia backyard of, I don't know, maybe 450, 500 square metres in a house. I don't think so. Anyone 
that took part in my studies live in an apartment. Yes, so basically people had a bit of land outside their house. So that's really important when you talk from a planning perspective because now you just put a cookie-cutter house and you don't have much space at the back. And even if you do, it's all covered in shade, so you can't really plant anything. Yeah, indeed. So what... What did you find out through your research? What kind of percentage of people's diet were they able to grow? And what else did you learn? Um, I was not looking at self-sufficiency because I don't think you can be self-sufficient living in a city, but you definitely can supplement a lot of your food. And on average, people have to give away a good 25% of their produce because they can't, you know, especially in summer when you have way too much zucchinis or cucumbers and you just can't eat them all. And people exchange, swap or preserve. So there are lots of informal economy that happens in, in the background, again, that we're not aware of, that we don't measure, that something perhaps someone else can research in the future is that informal economy um, around food production, urban food production. What kind of plants were people growing? Are they eating beyond the usual supermarket Oh, plant? yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I don't have the list with me, unfortunately, but there were really, really rare things, things that you can't buy from the supermarket. I'm yeah. trying to remember some of them. Uh, I saw a few weeds in there, like uh, purslane. Yes, yes, um, purslane and... Uh, some interesting vegetables. Edible flowers. Oh, yeah. uh, Mushrooms. You don't yep. think of growing mushrooms in your backyard, but I know someone who does that quite successfully. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, the variety is like over 100 different fruit and veggies people were growing in the backyard. And also, you, just, you don't get just the normal apple or you, you get the heritage varieties. Mm. Did you, is it honey as well? Is that included? Yes. Yep. Honey and someone had yabbies in the backyard. Yabbies? Yeah. <laughs> wow. I know. That's great. Yeah. It's <laughs> I fascinating. A, I saw a little aquaponics set up at a school in Geelong uh, a few weeks ago where they were. So aquaponics is where you've got, um, you, you, you feed fish usually mm. and then the, their manure-rich water get, becomes the fertigation for a hydroponic um, veggie growing system. But they had yabbies in there, so the kids yes. loved it, all these little um, guys living in uh, pipes and running around. Uh did you get an idea? So you, you got everyone to measure everything. Yes. And like you said, it's not their full diet, but you quantified it, and this hasn't been done before. Did you, did, how, did, how did you slice the cake? Was it in terms of calories or nutritional requirements? Did you try and um, see what percentage of their no, diets through those no, lenses? I, I didn't look at nutritional requirements or calories. I just wanted to know how much people can produce from yeah. their bone back here. So it doesn't matter what is, whether it's just potatoes or apples or cherries i think the main thing is that we don't really know how much we can produce in our own backyard so th there's a huge potential there hmm. which is just not explored we we just don't know yeah do, do you have did, do you have any sense how widespread um home food production is in melbourne i think it's a very thriving activity yeah. and it just hasn't been looked into it's not so, it's not something that people really talk about. It's you know, you have a garden, you're happy with it and you just you just eat from what is from your backyard. It's not something that you say, Hey, look, I have a big backyard here and I grow all sorts of things. Yeah. And tr and I guess traditionally it was something that you just did by default. So pre refrigeration if you wanted vegetables uh, well or if 
I mean, I guess it'd be when Melbourne was settled, Chinese market gardeners grew stuff like right in the city, and we probably settled this area largely because it is such good growing regions. But still, it's going to be relatively expensive. And I read in your article that uh, in New South Wales, Governor Phillips declared the quarter acre block should be the norm for the new settlements. So that's that's um, he like that's saying that that's a pretty decent size to grow a fair amount of your food, right? That's oh, what he, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. But that's not happening because with all the subdivisions that's happening in property prices, that's driving the subdivision. We're losing valuable land, and in Melbourne with the urban growth, with the uh, urban growth uh, boundary, boundary. Thank you, Kate. Mm. Yes, we're losing valuable agricultural land. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There might be asparagus riot. Yes. <laughs> That's what I'm hoping for. Imagine what Melbourne would look like if you rolled a quarter acre block across the land for 8 million people projected in 2050. Yeah, what well, would Melbourne look like? How big would it be? Mm. Massive. Sprawl. Mm. <laughs> but at the same time, um, it seems like the amount of food production people are getting per square metre is higher. It, you... I think, in your work than what you're getting out on the field. Is that correct? I'm not sure what you mean by that. Oh, well, it seemed like you were saying that there were quite remarkably high uh, production of kilos in, in small spaces. So I presume that meant relative to what people get on the farm. Well, to give you an example, the total size, uh, plot size yeah. for the, this research, uh, this is the growing area, not the... Um, not where the house is located. It's, it's just over a 1,000 square metres. And the produce was 388 kilograms for one year. Yeah, amongst the 15 participants. Among the yeah. Yeah, 15 participants. And, yeah. and that really varies too because some people are so much more productive with, with mm. their... With their garden, some is not as productive. Is it the way they use it, the, their backyard? Because some people, they have kids, so they have to yeah. put aside a bit of space for kids to play. And retired people with no kids, they can dedicate the, um, the entire backyard or a, a large portion of the backyard for food production. Mm. So that, that is a lot for food, if you yeah. think about it. So 1,000 is about a quarter acre. Yeah. Mm. And, so, and also, can I just add that, you know, mm. if people were saying that this is not possible, but look at Cuba, and uh, because Cuba, they are producing 60, 70% of their food, organic food, from urban farming, and so is Russia. Russia in, Inside in, the urban boundaries. Yes. Yeah. Because the, the, the government policy promotes home gardening. Yeah. Well, there's certainly a lot of open space that's being underutilised mm. as it stands. So do you have any idea why this stuff went out of fashion? Like, you know, if let's say in the 50s everyone was doing it and, like you said, it wasn't being talked about and then there was, you know, a few decades. It feels like it's coming back now, right? It is, yes. I, I think what happened was during the Second World War there was not enough food and everywhere you have this victory garden movement and people were encouraged to grow their own food and after the war people were just, you know, I don't know. I think people just got distracted with working in factories and doing other things and, you know, our food system got hijacked by... It's a lot easier to go to the supermarket than it yeah. is to grow food. Mm. When did That's TV come? 1955 or something? Yeah, yeah mid-50s, I think. Probably. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Yeah, and the whole hoop. Your veggie does not come with like a sexy model modelling it in your own backyard or, no. or a shiny packaging and 
and a, th- and a, and a jingle. So there's something to work on. <laughs> <laughs> next, next project. <laughs> You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on 3 R. Uh, you are Greening the Apocalypse on 3 R. And, um, I found the list. Oh, did you? Yes, from um, Zinal's study of things people were growing in backyards. It includes amaranth, apple, cucumber, acorn, squash, butterscotch, babaco, gooseberry, edible canna, elderflower, gem squash. The list goes on and on. Yacon, warrigal greens. 101 different types of nuts, fruits, and vegetables. Ah, and this was just in 15 backyards yes, that you studied. 15 backyards. Yes. Oh, good on you, Sarah. It's amazing. So, so for those that are just tuned in, we are talking with uh, Zainal Zainuddin, who is a food, urban food researcher at RMIT, and she's been uh, getting people to itemise and weigh everything they've been growing in their backyards and doing seems like almost a first-of-a-kind study into how much people can produce in backyards in Melbourne. So very uh, fascinating data. Did When you talk to people, you also ask them why they grow food. Was yes. it more than just uh, saving money? Um, no, saving money was not top of the list. The top of the list was uh, different reasons. Um, ecological reasons, mm. uh, food mile, organic, GE-free, peak oil, climate change, land stewardship, taste. So there's different reasons that people gave for wanting to grow their own food. Mm. Food security is one. Yep. And did it feel like they were benefiting from these things or they were aspirational? I I think they were benefiting from it simply because when they have too much, they gave them they gave them they gave them to neighbours. They shared them. Um, at food swap or they took them to the local church and distribute the food. So it's not just them that benefit, it's the community that benefit as well. Mm. One of the things I love about community gardening is the uh, community networking opportunities that it provides. Did you find that any of your participants were gathering in their neighbours and getting them to help and having like harvest parties and having a bit more of a communal gardening time than doing it on their own? I didn't look into that, and I don't think so. They they were professional, these people. My participants, they were all professional. They have full-time work outside of home, and I did not ask if um, if they do any of that activities. Yeah. That was not part of my research. I grow food in my front garden for to to as a way that uh, allows me to talk to my neighbours because everybody stops and talks to me when I'm in there. But the negative thing is currently when it's completely overgrown and looking a mess, um, I feel the guilt. Mm. <laughs> I'm judged. <laughs> Do shame. people steal from the front yard? No, never. Because my friend had in West Preston one lemon on her tree and it was cruelly snatched from her. Lemons must be like hot property because the lady up the road from me has to put a sign on her lemon tree that says stop stealing my lemons, I'm watching you. Yeah. <laughs> my garden's fine and all of the 3,000 acres public gardens we have to write up signs and stick them on the wall and say please can somebody harvest the food in this garden. Oh wow. Yeah. Wow that's nice. Yeah. It's yeah. a sign of being excessively overfed probably. <laughs> <laughs> But I say that even though you have your own 
private garden, you can still build community because what I do in, in at home is that every year just after Christmas, I open up my whole backyard and I invite all my neighbours and friends and families. We do this every single year for a few years now. And we just said, just bring a plate of food or something and preferably something that you grow from your backyard. And we just had a party from about 3.30 to late and people mm. would bring the guitar and we just sing and we have a... It's so much fun. Yeah. Well, you must have uh, very productive neighbours. It's good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good to, yeah, and it's good to hear some of the positive sides where, where people are growing food. We had Shiona Candy on last week who talked about the challenges for Melbourne feeding itself if everything goes according to plan to 2050. And so she's been modelling things with computers and incorporating things like urban sprawl, farmland degradation and climate change. And it's like, okay, well, we're going to be getting a lot less food percentage-wise to feed the population of Melbourne from the immediate surrounds. Now, in your paper, you, <laughs> you, you there's not heaps of it, but you contextualised a little bit why people might consider growing um, home food production in terms of if things don't go according to that not very good plan. Mm. If things go, <laughs> if there are short-term shocks, uh, what, what did you look at there? I think it is possible if you have a variety of produce in your backyard. Just imagine you have potatoes and you have a few greens and you have chickens, you have eggs. You could potentially survive for, I don't know, a short period of time, a week mm. or two. Yep. But it will be very limited diet based on what you grow in your backyard. So I I think it's, it's not enough just to grow things in your backyard. You have to know your neighbours because if you – are a bit more organized, you can actually save your neighbors. You just grow potatoes this season and I'll grow garlic and someone else will grow something else and you just pull in the the harvest and then everyone get to mm. get something. There's a quote you've got in there. It's some English House of Lords guy saying that England's nine year, nine meals away from yeah, it's anarchy. From anarchy but yes. yeah, if there's, if there's nine meals of potatoes in the backyard, I guess you're... Um, uh, if everyone had that, w- there would be this resilience in the city yes. itself. Yeah, to those, and he he was particularly concerned about o- oil imports or trucking strikes, where um, yeah, the the food is off the shelves pretty quickly. And absolutely, especially here in Australia, we only have about of the oil supply. We have only about four days um, worth of fuel to run the the country, the economy. So can you imagine if there is a war that, that breaks out somewhere or something happens somewhere, so we're not going to have the fuel to run the economy mm. of this country. Yeah, you'd like to think, if anything, that food trucks would be the most prioritised, but mm. um, it'll be a capitalist market, <laughs> who knows? Yep. Whether, or, or you know, who knows where that will go. But it, it also is, is the skill. Is the, you think that... Lots of people know how to grow food, but that's not the case. You have to give people the the knowledge and the skill how mm-hmm. to grow food. Mm-hmm. Food is seasonal and there is process to it. Some things you can grow straight and you put straight the seeds into the ground it'll grow. And some some produce you have to start it in um, seedlings before you can put it into the ground. And so, if people don't grow food in in in, in urban areas, we're gonna we're gonna lose th- that knowledge. Mm. And also food preservation, you know, how, once you know it, it's, it's really quite easy. And that's something you can do, again, with, with, with a whole bunch of people. Preservation, fermentation, and making sauces, chutneys, that all could be turned into a community activities that will bring people closer together. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, one thing, I mean, I've found, like, doing the permablitz stuff and uh, just, you know, home peasanty kind of activities where you're bottling and preserving, uh, that it's it is it's a different kind of social life where, where you're working with your hands and you, you're not... 100% focused on the other person, but it's, that kind of allows your mind to drift and jump around in this more playful way, in my experience. And you actually end up having it's often better uh, conversations. silence also. Yeah, and also that. There's, there's, a, there's a depth to a working friendship, isn't there? Yes, yep. absolutely. Not always in the world. Sometimes, yeah. though, if you're harvesting honey with some slack people... What are you talking about? Why are you looking at me? <laughs> no. Maybe this would be a program where you can adopt grandparents who have been producing their own food for a long time to come to your house and teach you. Yeah. yeah. I've adopted some of my street. Yeah. And I teach them how to properly grow tomatoes. And, and just the mm. Mediterranean um, and, oh, and, and um, some Southeast Asian cultures that have come, which didn't have the same cultural cringe that the Anglo tradition had that saw it, you know, because we all, we all, I'm Anglo tradition, um, put lawns in the front yard and tried to copy a little bit of the the english manor which is very deliberate i think we've talked about on the show before but it's like a it's a cultural symbol saying i don't need to grow food that's where it came from it's Mm. obnoxious when you think about it it's like i'm not poor and i'm gonna waste stuff to prove it (laughs) but fortunately there just as it was phasing out you know in the the 50s in anglo culture it it was when the waves of um european immigrants were coming across and bringing uh much more climate adapted plants as well because they're coming from mediterranean uh, conditions and so there's this huge source of knowledge that's sitting there now but a lot of those people are starting to get a bit quite that yeah that pool of knowledge is only going to be around for this snapshot of time yeah so how do we reap that knowledge yeah that's true because some of my participants or more my neighbors, they are Italians. They're first generation and they're fantastic um, gardeners. But their kids, they haven't taken up gardening. So it is one generation yeah. you're losing that yeah. tradition of growing food in your backyard. And also without the Greeks and the Italians, we wouldn't have zucchinis. We wouldn't have capsicum. We wouldn't have eggplants. So, yeah. It's unthinkable. I know. <laughs> As it stands now, I mean, it feels like a little bit of what is happening in the food movement does have a bit of a middle-classy vibe, though, doesn't it? Yes, Let's it does. How do, so how do we... Is, is that valuable in itself, or do we need... You know, is, is it just embarrassing, or is it of value? What do you reckon? I don't have the answer to that. Yeah. Yes, I, I think we were talking this before we came into the studio I, I know that sometimes I feel that I'm in an echo chamber the people I know they tend mm. to be aware about all these issues they grow food in the backyard but there are lots of people out there who are just simply unaware and would, would maybe your next research project I'm really curious what the environmental impacts pro and con of hipsterism are because <laughs> it is we laugh but you know it, it, it's bringing back some um, you know, knitting and and actually self-reliant skills and often it's tied with better diets for the planet. Mm. It could, could, can, you, can you crunch the numbers? 
<laughs> it just needs to be completely normalised. Like growing food needs to be not even a discussion. You know, exactly. it's just what you do. Yeah. Yeah. And that probably has to start in schools. You are on Greening the Apocalypse on 3 Triple R, and we have been talking with the wonderful Zainal Zanudin. Thank you, Zainal, so much for coming in tonight. Thank You're you great for guest. having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Jed, for um, pushing all the buttons in the correct order, as always. And uh, Kate or Sarah, do you guys know what's coming up next week? Do you know? oh. Sarah's in. Yeah, yeah. next week's going to be good. We're looking at the environmental impact of Bitcoin. I know. Who would have even thought that was an issue? I didn't even know that. So <laughs> that should be. It's going to be awesome. Our guest is Lachlan Simpson, who is, um, I think he's the Victorian member for the pirate party yes he's a big deal <laughs> um well i have been adam grubb and i'm not sure am i allowed to steal bushy's catchphrase yeah all right until next week have all the fun this has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.